Welcome to the St. Clair College Women in STEM Speaker Series Podcast. I'm your host, Sue Taylor, and I am the Program Manager of Innovation, Entrepreneurship, and Student Experience at the Genesis Entrepreneurship Centre, located in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. This podcast was developed to highlight women who have excelled in male-dominated industries and environments, women who are leaders, and women who serve to inspire and act as role models and mentors to young women, which we like to refer to as STEM champions. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering and Math, and has most recently included Entrepreneurship and Manufacturing. Our goal is to support and foster these women and show that then they can accomplish all they set out to achieve and then some. Stay tuned to learn more about women working in STEM, their journeys, their challenges, their accomplishments, and so much more. This is the Women in STEM Speaker Series Podcast. Welcome. Uh, we've got Sue Braden here today with us, who is is called herself a better world technologist, and I'm going to let her explain about that. But welcome, Sue. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mother Sue, and thank you for having me. <laughs> it's like Sue Squared on our show today. <laughs> so um, always we start off with a little tell us about yourself. So if you want to talk um, a bit about, you know, sort of where you grew up and what schools you attended and talk about family life and kids, anything like that, that uh, tells us a little bit more about Sue Braden. Well, I grew up in a really small town called Wallaceburg, and I was a science teacher's daughter, and that should give you your first clue about how I ended up in STEM. I also had a mother who was uh, really powerful, uh, servant leader and role model. So my parents were my first and my most powerful role models. Um, both of them taught me not only to embrace the life of a servant, a life of service, but that a woman's place was anywhere and everywhere. So those early years in a small town were terrific because my foundation was laid there. I was the only girl, three brothers. Um, we had a wonderful small town life. Everything was about community. It was idyllic. I was very, very lucky. I ended up uh, going to University of Western Ontario on a full ride, um, uh, intending to go for uh, journalism and also social work. And uh, a number of years later, I ended up back there teaching uh, part of the MBA program at the, uh, at the time it was called the National Management Research and Development Center. And that was less than a decade later. And I did that <laughs> with my second son strapped to my chest in a snuggly when he was only five days old. So he went to university a lot sooner than most people. And this was actually um, a warning sign, a, a warning sign, a really early red flag that pointed to my lifelong and life-threatening battle with workaholism, something we've chatted about a couple of times between the two of us. Absolutely. And before that, I used to take my first son uh, back to work at night, bundled up in my winter coat as a blanket in the bottom of a tech writing cart um, until the wee hours of the morning. But, you know, I'll talk about that later. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that um, I refer to myself as a better world technologist, and that's in partnership with the other, that's solutions journalism. And for me, those two things are hand in hand. Uh, my tagline is change the story, change the world, because I think there is profound power in storytelling. And when you couple that with the notion of asking two questions, and that's uh, what works and how do we do more than that? It's a pretty epic springboard. So uh, better world technologist. Um, for me, it's just about using technology as a tool for community capacity building um, and communities defined by geography and also those of practice. Um, well, at the beginning, uh, that was the result of a happy accident um, with a woman from Bell Telephone walking into a classroom where I was teaching, um, making a career that was a very big choice. Uh, I saw a gap uh, and I felt called to fill it. And uh, that happened as the result of a woman from Sierra Leone, something else that I'll talk about a little bit later in our chat, I think. But she helped me see a gap and um, looking for the gaps. That's always a really powerful springboard. Um, they're a, a wonderful portal. My happiest role was being a mom to four kids. Uh, as I said, I had a daughter and I had three sons. Um, my Better World Scout pivot actually happened because of a moment where I was standing in my daughter's junior kindergarten class. And um, it was after meeting one of my first and most powerful mentors, 
a woman named Millie Akinsulare from Sierra Leone, West Africa. She showed me the gap. Um, she showed me that it was never about technology for technology's sake. It was about how technology could be a tool to change people's lives in some really powerful and profound ways. And she changed the trajectory of my entire life. So I was kind of the start. And making your world better is a better world technologist. It's I'm just li- listening to you talk about you being a only daughter with three brothers and having an only daughter with three brothers. And I am the only daughter with three brothers. So <laughs> it's like, and we're both named with the same name too. As worlds collide. And I think um, at times I early on, I bemoaned the fact that I was the only girl because I had a different set of rules. My brothers were allowed to go to rock concerts on their own very early on. I was never allowed to do that. My brothers had the one of the very first computers, an Atari computer. And I would have traded every Barbie doll and girly thing I ever had just to be able to have those hobbies. And while I had really empowering, very progressive parents, back in the 60s and 70s, there was still ideas about what girls do and what boys do. So that may have ticked me off in the early days, but I think it made me incredibly determined to get there on my own. Mm-hmm. And that helped. <laughs> and see, and I had a different experience where my father was an engineer and I was not treated any differently than the boys. And I, you know, had to learn how to, you know, do basic electrical. And I knew how to change my oil in my car and change a tire and things that weren't typically uh, things that the, that daughters learn. However, I still was cleaning the house and cutting the lawn, <laughs> doing the things that, that, that everybody did. And we had one of the very first Apple computers. And my I have a brother that is a programmer. And uh, both my other two brothers are actually both very uh, involved with computers, but because we had that early on. So and we had to go, we went to computer camp back in the day, but we all did it the same. We all played baseball. We did everything. I, I didn't have. How wonderful so, that, that was your experience. Yes. But then they're a little more overprotective when it's the daughter because yeah. you know, the risks that are involved <laughs> with that. But uh, no, I was very, uh, very thankful for that, that I, you know, I know how to, I can put up drywall if I have to, because. There, I wasn't getting, you know, everyone had to learn that in our house. So it was great. That's so amazing. It sounds like you've had uh, many incredible experiences over the years. Um, so can you talk to us your, you know, top one or two incredible experiences? I think the one with Miliak and Solare was, it was the big one. Um, it informed everything from that point on in my life. But there were two others that really um, wrote themselves on my heart. <laughs> One of the earliest was failing high school math. Um, I was an Ontario scholar, but I failed high school math. And because of that, I was not allowed to take computer classes. And uh, this is when they were brand new. It was I was there when computers were first introduced into high school. And it was a big deal. And I was I felt like I did all over again with my brothers having the Atari and me having Barbies. I just thought, oh, why? But it was just really great fuel because in spite of that, less than a decade later, um, I found myself going on to teach computers as part of the MBA program at the University of Western Ontario, um, including teaching university professors from all over Canada. So, you know, huzzah. (laughs) That was a big moment for me that in spite of the fact that I was told, no, you can't do this. I found a way to do it anyway. Were you um, self-taught then? You, I was completely, okay. completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a happy accident by virtue of somebody that took um, a huge chance on me and hired me into a role that I was completely unqualified for. One of my early male mentors, Don Gage. The second, when I think about big, big moments um, that really shaped my joy and my notion of how powerful technology could be for changing lives and literally changing the world was joining a conference in Brentwood Theater, Hollywood. This was right after the the tragedy at Littleton, Colorado, where um, two boys took the lives of a lot of their classmates with guns. And I was asked to come in as part of the team that helped shape the response to that. And um, 
following up with that, I was then invited to a conference where James L. Brooks, who most people will know as being the producer for The Simpsons, the creator for The Simpsons, and his mm-hmm. wife, Holly, who created, was writer for Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi. Like these, these were people with a lot of celebrity cachet, and they decided to take that. This was before TED conferences. They decided to take that and, and gather together a community of celebrities to say, what can we do? What's within our power to help change this story? What can we do to make sure that this gets talked about in a way that's, that's healthy and responsible? And how can we respond to that um, so that this never happens again? Um, and so they brought together world leaders. Um, I was participating with Maria Shriver at the time. Um, Dr. Hillary Rodham Clinton, um, prior to her, her big, big career, um, Al Gore, who at the time was the vice president. Like, there were a lot of um, significant people at this conference. And then there was little old me with a room full of kids in a grade one classroom in this sweltering, hot grade one classroom in Hugh Beaton School here in Windsor, doing one of the very first video conferences where these kids were projected up onto the big screen showing this technology we had created that would help put kids all over the world together with mentors, um, NHL hockey players and uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Lab special, just really incredible people. And, And just seeing the look on those kids' faces, because you could tell that they knew they were being seen, not just seen up on a big screen in Hollywood, but being seen as people. And that experience just was mind-blowing for me, just realizing that through this simple tool, these kids recognized that they weren't just kids in Windsor, that they were powerful in a way I don't think they'd ever imagined on the global stage. That was a big deal. That's incredible. That's a great story. (laughs) Wow. So how did you get attracted to technology in the first place then? You said, you know, this Atari computer we've heard about, but, you know, had did you know that's what you wanted to be when you grew up or did you just kind of that? I know you little things that lead to your pathway, but had you always been sort of techie? Yeah, I actually wanted to be a writer and teach deaf kids. Mm-hmm. Um, technology wasn't even on my radar uh, because in high school, again, I was an Ontario scholar who failed math. So it just wasn't something I was allowed to do. Or, I mean, the, even having that word as part of the conversation that I wasn't allowed to learn technology, I still, the hair goes up on the back of my neck. <laughs> um, but because of that, I think I was just more determined when I finally did understand that they played a bigger part in, in, um, world changing. And so it didn't really hit my view again until I was 21 years old. And in spite of having failed high school math, I was um, hired as a bank teller to go (laughs) handle other people's money. And within uh, three years, I went from being a bank teller to um, having opportunities one after the other after the other up in head office for one of the biggest banks in Canada. At the time, it was Canada Trust. And going in to work with the computer development department that actually helped create the first ATM technology. You can see I'm dating myself here. The first, the first no, ATM technology. not to technology. me. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and this is where one of my most beloved mentors came into my life. Um, Don Gage, who ran that department, uh, didn't see a girl who failed math. He didn't look at the system metrics that, that tried to put my worth into a label. He looked at me as a human being and my potential and he took a chance on me. And because of that, I was plopped into this computer library where I was responsible for the, this massive room full of resources. And over my noon hours, I would go through and I would, I would use all these tapes and teach myself um, programming and teach myself the principles. And then we had uh, a rep from IBM when PCs were brand new. They they had just hit the, the deck. We used some of the very first PCs in North America. And I remember rolling up my sleeves with Gord um, from IBM, and he was literally teaching me how to rip computers apart, uh, nuts and bolts over my lunch hours. So that just was a profound hallelujah moment. But the big one was when my boss, Don, had sent me for computer graphics training, and it was very rudimentary back then. <laughs> But I just remember the first huge epiphany that I had about technology happening when I was um, sitting in this room thinking, my God, these things are going to change people's lives. 
And I didn't know why I felt that, but it was just an immediate sense of a calling that I had to learn as much as I could to find the ways that these things could be tools for doing exactly that. So um, it was kind of funny because with me, a lot of this was serendipity where it was just sort of one happy accident leading to another. And I think the next big one would be when I was teaching in a classroom and a woman from Bell, a rep from Bell, um, walked into that classroom accidentally. She was supposed to be someplace else, but thankfully she accidentally walked into my class and we just started up this conversation. And um, she was one of the first people looking to bring internet lines um, into Southwestern Ontario, one of the, some of the first lines in Canada, and was trying to figure out, you know, how are we ever going to convince people that this is um, worth doing? And we got chatting and I gathered a bunch of allies from businesses all over Southwestern Ontario into this classroom then a couple of weeks later. And we had the very first, one of the very first video conferencing uh, meetings where they showed us the technology. I and mean, back then it was so, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get into. It wasn't something you could do like we're doing now, you know, home computer with a webcam. And that just started a whole bunch of conversations. And that was really where I became born as a sort of a tech evangelist. And uh, just really being on a bandwagon to find a way that we could bring this technology into classrooms and into healthcare and into community sustainability uh, building projects to really um, empower people in a way that would make a difference. And then, you know, the next happy accident from there was um, being given a chance. I was actually in a, a, a parent workshop where we were, again, looking at ways of keeping kids safer online. and. Um, one of the, uh, Paul um, Vasey was there from CBC Radio and uh, was chatting about the media's role in things like Littleton and, and that response. And he was really fascinated with our interaction in between sessions and called back the producer and said, you need to talk to this woman. And lo and behold, I ended up as a computer columnist for CBC Radio for 10 years. So like none of this was planned. It was, um, if I have to point it back to two things, I think one was just my intense need to serve, to be of use, and a recognition that this was a tool that could do that on a global scale in ways I had never thought possible. Wow. So lucky girl. So many experiences. Like with, uh, when I first talked to you, and, and that's kind of what went through my head, like, you need to be on this podcast just because you've done, <laughs> you're, you're certainly exemplify what we're trying to um you know, to teach our, that younger generation, like sort of, you know, you never know where things are going to lead you, lead you. And, um, you know, my daughter's in a place right now where she's looking to choose what she's going to do for high school or for college or university and is struggling with that. And I said, you know, just because you start somewhere is not where you're going to end up. You don't oh, have to decide man. for the rest of your life. So just, let's just pick something that you you're interested in, but that is still something is usable, <laughs> you know, and that still opens doors. It doesn't. That is such a, a powerful message for you to send her as a parent. And I wish somebody had said that to me back when I was considering university, because it was devastating when I realized that my path wasn't going to go the way that I had perfectly planned. Mm -hmm. And had I had somebody tell me that you don't have to be this one thing for the rest of your life. You can have many things that the healthiest thing you can do is recognize that you change as a human being. So do your interests and your goals and your path, your career pathway should adapt to that along the way. So bravo. Absolutely. Daughter well, is well served by that advice. Well, my intention was I was going to teach. I wanted to teach um, in high school and that's what I kind of led my path and it didn't end up that way because there were no jobs. So then I end up in healthcare and then all of a sudden now I'm back and I've, you know, been able to um, complete that sort of, you know, passion to want to teach. I'm doing that now at the college, but not in on the academic side. I'm, you know, you and I have a similar trajectory, that virtuous <laughs> circle where you start out with one idea in your head and oddly enough, you go on a very broad arc, but you, end up where you were meant to You be. get there, but you have way, way more fun doing it this way, for <laughs> sure. So let's, let's talk about that again a little bit, like from the projects that you've worked on and, you know, the, the more that you see um, women getting involved now, we've got more programmers and we've got, uh, we're in IT designers, we've got in cybersecurity. How do we 
get more women involved in that. And again, at an early age too, because we were trying to promote that. That's a big um, part of what, you know, our, kind of our, our goals and our mandate here is to get them out there and, and make, let them think that this is something they can do. How do we do that from your perspective? Since you, you've been, you've, you've been in the industry a long time. Relevance. Yeah. The way that we use technology in the classroom is everything. It can't just be about programming. It has to start with things that make kids come alive. Um, you have to show them how powerful they are, not because of technology, but through it. Um, a whole lot of us, often girls, spent way too much time convinced we sucked at math and often science when we really didn't. The system failed us. Um, and girls were in my day. Girls were taught how to cook and sew in home economics, and the boys were taught how to fix cars and shop. And in some ways, the system is still failing us. It's getting a whole lot better, though. Um, one of my favorites is the Girl Scouts organization in the U.S., um, who are, have been able to, through their program, show that Girl Scouts are twice as likely as non-Girl Scouts to participate in STEM activities instead of 35% of girls, now 60%. It's a huge leap. Wow. And that 77% of girls say that because of Girl Scouts, they're now considering a career in technology mm-hmm. in STEM. Mm-hmm. So their outgoing CEO, uh, Sylvia Acevedo, who I absolutely love, um, she was a NASA Jet Propulsion um, Lab scientist. And she did massive good, not only as a mentor, but someone who completely reinvented the landscape of a program that so many girls like me grew up with. Um, I wish their STEM program had been available in my time. Um, Girl Guides in here, here in Canada offer a similar program called Girls in STEM, uh, which allows members, you know, girls age five to, I think it's 17, to experiment and design and create and imagine, look at all the different possibilities of what they can achieve in a world of science and technology and engineering and math. Um, And through conducting experiments and exploring electronics and even learning about animation, they, they not only earn badges, but they develop a curiosity and a path towards STEM with lots of support. Um, And today, nobody can tell our kids, you're not allowed to learn this. That's huge. Mm -hmm. That within the last couple of decades, Mm -hmm. that's a game changer. Um, Anyone can connect to countless internet-based educational communities and tap into phenomenal resources and mentors and opportunities free of charge. Alternatively, any one of us can step up to pay it forward as one of those mentors. A really good example of that is code.org. Um, it's worth looking at for sure. Uh, another great resource is the Khan Academy. Um, Solomon Khan rocks. He posted a couple of videos on YouTube to remotely tutor his cousins in math. And he accidentally stumbled onto the value of online learning. And today he's created just this huge legacy that includes thousands of videos on everything from arithmetic to physics to finance and history. And it just really worth taking a look at that. Um, and then really back to the classroom, um, the, the public school system, you've got teachers like uh, high school teacher David Preston in the U.S., who gave his students unfettered access to the internet and tools. And he threw out the curriculum and he collaborated with the, with the students to build a brand new one. And he invited them to become teachers and peer assessors. And they turned the classroom into a real-time business environment. Wow. Uh, they engaged in microfinance and peace building projects and gamifying collaboration to solve the problems that engagement and balance participation through crowdsourcing and points-based reputation reward system. It was just a phenomenal um, project. It's something I'll, I'll give you a link to, to, to share with your listeners because it yes. just, it's just an amazing example of the classroom working right. And another of my favorites, there's a teacher named John Hunter, who created something called the Peace Games. And um, he put all of the problems of the world onto this four by five sheet of plywood. And then he let his fourth graders solve them. They came up with breakthrough innovations that wiped the floor with anything even the most renowned world leaders have come up with. 
And kids are politicized. And more importantly, they don't know that they can't do it. <laughs> so the World Peace Game engaged school kids and taught complex lessons in a fun and spontaneous way that lectures never could. Um, he gave a terrific TED talk about this. Again, it's a link I'll share. Um, and it's so worth watching. It just, I, again, relevance. It's relevance, whether it starts in the things we send our kids to in the community, extracurricular activities like the Girl Guides, or what we're actually doing to reinvent education in a more relevant way for our kids. Well, and I think that's very much key where we're looking at what is the cool things about a job? Because kids aren't looking at that, you know, even with my daughter. I come home, I'll do a podcast, and I'm like, you're going to be a a pilot. That's what you're going to be now. And then the next person I'm like, you're going to be an explosives chemist and you're going to work. <laughs> and she's like, mother, you know, but it's, it's like, cause you, you're trying to look for what appeals to them at that age and get them interested. And I think, you know, great advice that we're, we're engaging them and, and making them know that what they are doing and what they are, because they don't look at themselves as adults. They're not there yet. You well, know? you just hit on something really important, Sue, and that's that we can't always look to the education system or the system at large to be the thing that solves that problem. As parents, we have so much power to shape our kids in a way that allows them to see those things, whether we're aware of them or not. And, and it can be as simple as the the entertainment choices that we make, the movies that we watch. Um, for instance, back in, I think it was 2019, Rosman Pike, this is on Prime Video now, um, they did a movie called Radioactive. And it was about how Madame Curie um, kicked butt in a time and in fields that she had in many, the opinion of many people, no business being in, maths and scientists, sciences. Mm -hmm. And she didn't just win one Nobel Peace Prize, she won two. And then her daughter went on to win, win one herself in 1935. And so this is a woman that back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s was out there saying, the heck with you, this is what I'm doing. And because of her, I watched this movie and I had tears rolling down my eyes because as you know, um, I'm going through radiation therapy right now. I'm you know, doing my second dance with cancer. And this is the woman that discovered that thing that's now saving my life 120 some odd years later. Wow. I mean, that got me excited. That's the kind of thing that would make me as a kid, the kidney, look at that and go, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, there's just so many compelling examples of entertainment we can share with our kids. It's not hitting them over the head with some hard lesson about this is what you should do and why. It's just giving them great storytelling mm -hmm. to let them decide for themselves what they connect with. Well, and again, I think that's a great example of you see kids who become doctors because they had experienced illness with a parent or, you know, just something that motivated them or they, you know, it's and not necessarily all about being what, whatever your parents do, yeah. uh, but doing something that you saw that was effective for them. So, um, yeah, I think that's uh, it is that way of getting them excited. And they're different than we were back in our day. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very different culture because of that whole, the technology, you know, they don't. Well, that, and I think too, that for generations, there was this affinity for living vicariously through our kids that because we didn't have certain opportunities, we wanted something better for our kids. And I think a lot of parents, well-intended, accidentally ended up sort of creating a trajectory that maybe didn't fit their kids so well. It was sort of them living through their kids. And that's a really tough thing not to do. Yeah. I am absolutely guilty of doing that at times, whether I want to admit <laughs> it or not. <laughs> The key is to get our kids to live vicariously through us. Oh, man. <laughs> See? There you go. <laughs> so anything that you wish you'd done differently over the years, then things that you would change, you know, in that trajectory you had, what would you do differently now? Lots. I think for me, one of the big ones is something that I'm living with the consequences of right now. Uh, and that is the notion of work-life balance. Uh, that is so much more than a buzzword. And I think encouraging our kids to, and actually living as good examples of what it looks like to honor your priorities and that work is not the thing that's there for you in the end. Um, I had several huge wake up calls that should have been the thing that changed the course I was on. I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, I was taking my five-year-old son just back to work in the nights and bundling him up in a 
my coat in a tech cart till three o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, strapping my next son into a snuggly and teaching in the front of the classroom when he was five days old. And, you know, the time I thought that's very noble and teaching my kids the value of working hard for a living and, you know, work ethic. And what I was doing was showing my kids that family didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, family didn't come first. Mm-hmm. And I think it's amazing to see that we live in a time when, gosh, one of the the biggest leading bodies, the the World Economic Forum, came together and for the first time in history said that people matter more Mm -hmm. than stakeholders' Mm -hmm. value. And put together this whole list a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic started, of how the biggest Fortune 500 companies in the world were going to honor that and place empathy and humanity at the front of what drove business. That was an historic, historic moment. And it's one that I really wish that I had have learned years ago, because here I am now, I not only won myself an autoimmune disease that completely torched my life, but not one, but two dances with cancer. I'm in the second one now, Mm -hmm. uh, now incurable because I had this crazy work life where I was working a hundred hours a week, thinking that would show that I was a valuable, worthy human being. And that would show, you know, those people who said I couldn't do this, that yes, I can. And look at me now. What it did is it's, it's put me in a place where it may cost me my life. Um, ironically, it may be the thing that ends up saving it because now at 58 years old, I finally get it <laughs> and I'm making <laughs> huge changes in the way that I look at the career leading back to something you said some advice you gave your daughter. And that is, um, we use, I don't know about you, Sue, but I grew up thinking that the, the best thing I could do was to find a company, one company and grow within the ranks of that company and be really good and a really loyal, um, employee. And that would make me worthy. And, um, boy, does that get it wrong because we grow as people, we constantly change and our career should reflect that as well. It doesn't make you disloyal. You're not a productive, valuable employee if you're burnt out and sick and disengaged. Mm-hmm. And so if there are opportunities to grow within an organization, that's wonderful. But if there's not, the best thing you can do is find a different opportunity. In my case, um, I had a really unconventional mentor come into my uh, life a few years ago, April Rinna, who is just amazing and taught me two things. And the first one was the value of flux, leaning into change and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And she gave this amazing TED talk right before the pandemic. It was um, a lot of foreshadowing where she talked about the fact that there's this, this notion of a portfolio career instead of one job, one person, your whole life. Uh, career portfolio instead of a career pathway, it means taking a look at what you've um, learned and gained, you know, your resources, your knowledge over the years, and how do you use that in several different ways to earn a living so that you can actually have a life. Uh, the one thing I didn't get right for years. And so that's the change I'm making at, at a point where most people my age are looking at, you know, retirement in a handful of years. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm finally starting my real life. And that's exciting because we live in a time where those opportunities are there. And um, thank heavens, I got the chance to stick around to to find that. It's exciting. So how do you make sure that you are not doing that anymore now? Like what are the activities that you involve yourself in? Like is yoga something for you or anything (laughs) that you do to find your your peace outside of work? Um, The one thing that I recognized was an opportunity with a portfolio career is it allowed me to marry the things that I loved most as a human being with the Mm -hmm. way I was earning a living. So I was really hung up, gosh, still am, whether I admit it or not, on the notion that I was told no. I could not be in STEM careers because of this one perceived failure where the system put a label on me saying, can't do math. And so, you know, I'll show them. I'll be the mo- the best technologist I can possibly be. I will show them what a girl can do with these tools. And I did. And yet I am completely entrenched still emotionally and mentally in the idea that that defines me. And that if I was to say, do something else that I loved, and that's, you know, making jewelry, making my own jewelry, making mantra cuffs, mm. um, doing my art, writing music because I'm a composer, that I was, if I was to pursue those things, that that somehow makes me less of a human being because I got really hung up on this label. And wow, was that, was that a shame? So the, again, going back to the portfolio career where I'm looking at the things that bring me joy, 
not judging myself and saying, this is just as important. This thing is just for me. It has nothing to do with making a better world. All the mantra cups could, but this thing that just brings me joy is just as worthwhile. I think as women, we are so often taught that it is our job to be the nurturer and that it is selfish to engage in self-care. And that's a slippery slope because we can't be of use to anybody when we're sick and burned out. And the things that bring us joy allow us to bring our full selves to work, to the job, whatever that is. And those things are just as world-changing as the big ones that, that have sort of that cachet of notoriety or what else, wherever, whatever else is attached. I think you have to define early on what success means to you. When I was younger, it was about chasing the money, the almighty buck and the titles mm-hmm. and the power. And then I had this woman come into my life. Um, I talked a little bit about Miliak and Sulure, who uh, she and her husband had started a university in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And at the time, uh, there was a democracy, but the Liberian rebels built across the border, um, demolished democracy overnight, um, took the kids. It, it just it was an unfathomable situation where you have five-year-old kids that were watching their entire families be butchered in front of them. And then these kids had were hauled off onto the front lines of war, five-year-olds given guns and machetes and were turned into soldiers. And for me, I, I tucked it, I think, at the beginning of this, but that being a huge turning point, I was standing in my daughter's junior kindergarten classroom, listening to these four-year-old kids sing the national anthem. And I just broke down and wept because I had been sitting with Millie watching through the internet as Sierra Leone had their first democratic election again in years. And it resulted in, um, it it didn't result in a clear um, uh, majority. So they had to wait to do a runoff election. And the the weeks that followed, we had these reports coming in from her family and friends about how the rebels were coming in and cutting off the hands of people that had voted in the first election and taking branding irons and burning no vote in their backs. And those people showed up and still voted and they brought democracy back. And so while Millie was gone, while she was in Canada sitting with me sharing this moment where I was literally sitting in my ivory tower in one of the biggest commercial buildings in London with a powerful career making lots of money, overnight I flipped on a dime. I went from being this career-driven, money-driven person to this better world scout who suddenly understood that this woman took technology back When they burned down the university, killed a bunch of the kids, she went back from Canada to Sierra Leone to try to find the kids that were still alive and then use technology to bring, to basically rebuild the fabric of their society. They, any internet lines that had been there, the rebels were coming in and cutting and burning down. Um, You would have only one healthcare worker for 50 miles around. It might be a pharmacist. And they'd have these resurgences of river blindness and dengue fever and AIDS. And there was no way to cope with that. So they were using at that time, the internet to download once a day, these links to resources and help to rebuild their society. That was such a massive aha moment for me. I can't even like, I'm having a hard time not losing it right now. Just remembering that because this woman embodied everything about what was possible through technology that you could take this tool that so many of us here take for granted and literally reinvent a society, bring a society back to life. Wow. That's I don't remember the question you asked. I'm sorry I went down a rabbit trail. Well, <laughs> it actually leads into my next question was talking about mentors, um, because I feel like that was, again, a very strong influence that she had on you. You mentioned oh, a couple wow. of other words, other ones, but, you know, and the, I was going to talk about what, what, how did you get led through the path with those mentors and, and the importance of it? But I feel like you've kind of, you know, summarized well, it with a great story too. Don Gage was, was really the first one in business because he didn't, I, I, again, I think I said that he, he said the hell with systemetrics. He's not going to look at the fact that I failed math. He saw something in me and gave me the chance and put me in a place where I could learn and self-teach. And then Millie, after I'd sort of self-taught and went like this trajectory where I just had promotion after promotion until I was leading um, computer units across the country for the biggest, one of the biggest banks in Canada. So what Don gave me the opportunity to do, Millie gave me the chance to pay forward and back. And then there actually was, <laughs> this is a good example of what a mentor is and isn't. There's a woman named Pam Omidyar. She and her husband, Pierre, were the founders of eBay. 
And I remember the first time I heard about them, I was on a flight to Vancouver, uh, to one of my business units, and I was reading the in-flight magazine. And I remember reading about Pam and Pierre being the 10th wealthiest couple in the world. At that point, I think they were worth something like $30 billion. And this article talked about how it was their goal to give away their wealth in their lifetime to empower better world projects. And I just remember thinking, what cool people. You know, they could do anything they wanted to make their lives better, but what they were doing was making others' lives better. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that a couple of years later, I was going to be put into the same place as these two amazing people and work side by side with them. And Pam actually become one of my very best friends, incredible woman. She is probably one of the most powerful mentors I've had by accident. She didn't set out to be my mentor. This was mentorship by proximity. And I think that's really important for women to hear, anyone to hear, that you can choose your mentors and they don't, it doesn't have to be an official relationship. That when you choose to be influenced by somebody's example, gosh, that's powerful stuff. She just, she embodied humility and empathy and just this fierce determination. And she taught me what true leadership looks like, that it's not about power. It's about empowering. It's about servant leadership and asking, how can I be of use? Um, she saw what was going on in Darfur, Sudan back in 2003. And she said, not anymore. Not on my watch. Then, and this was the phenomenal part. She rolled up her sleeves and got into the trenches beside us. People like me. I was nobody. But she and her husband built this online community based around the question, how can I discover my own power to make good things happen? Mm -hmm. And this was a huge social experiment where they took a big chunk of their money and gave us the chance to decide how that was going to be spent. Now, they had a foundation to decide what worthy causes were, but they just unleashed a bunch of us regular people to figure out how we could do that. And then she worked right beside us. And watching that example was just mind-blowing. This woman was one of the 12 richest people in the world. She could have stacked it out, but she was home baking her own chicken pot pies. And uh, just a great example, again, that, that not all mentorships are formal. And being fortunate enough to work, um, to collaborate with somebody whose very best example is the living embodiment of mentorship was just phenomenal. And I think many of those mentors come along when you decide to serve. Um, when you ask, how can I be of use without the expectation of anything in return? I think it's, I know it's also important to recognize and talk about the darker side of mentorship, that there's going to be times when people will appoint themselves to be your mentor whether you want them to or not, whether they should or not. And this could be somebody that's in a position of power over you, perhaps a boss. And this can be really tricky because you may feel obligated and very vulnerable, especially when you're starting your career and you're trying to build your, your reputation and your integrity. And learning to enforce your boundaries, and this is something you and I have talked about before, learning to enforce your boundaries even with your leaders, especially with your leaders, is really important. There are some leaders who can be really toxic, and they can be divisive, and they can steal your sense of personal agency. And some things are non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. Your values, your integrity, your sense of personal agency, your humanity, mm -hmm. you have to honor yourself first. Your values and integrity and your sense of personal agency are not for sale, not ever. With a mentor and a leader, assume good intent, but trust your instincts. Mm -hmm. Just because somebody's in a position of power does not mean they have always got your best interests in mind. The best men in relationships happen when there's a safe space in which honest feedback can be shared with the intent of growth. And that should never include gaslighting and shame. Unfortunately, sometimes it does. Um, and there's a difference between confidence and entitlement, narcissism. So if a mentor tells you that they have to strip you down and nothing to build you back up in their image, believe them, run, don't walk. Mm -hmm. And it does happen. And I think as women, we really need to hear that. A lot of our generation, perhaps more than the current generation, we're taught to be respectful and not question authority. That does not serve us well. Um, and some of us are lucky 
enough to have, uh, you know, a lifelong mentor, um, someone who just pervasive and larger than life. More often than not, our life is shaped by many mentors. Um, some of them come into our lives for only a moment to offer just a single lesson. Um, some come in for a season just to shape one aspect of our past. So I just think mentoring has to be a two-way street. It has nothing to do with age. There's wisdom to be found on both sides of your age group and including from very young people that you may be mentoring yourself. The best mentoring relationships are always reciprocal. Yeah, I was going to say that, it, and your mentor doesn't necessarily have to be above you in the ladder, <laughs> you know, a rung above. They could be uh, from below you as far as, you know, classification in your job or what Absolutely. Uh, again, I feel like I learn from the, some of the students here all the time. Like, I have no doubt time. about it. The stories they tell sometimes and, or, you know, I'm looking at their resume. I'm like, you have more in your resume than I do. And you're 24 <laughs> years old and it's amazing. So, um, and I, I don't look at that as like how that affects you know, that I look bad on that. I look at that, like, that's incredible and, and continue to do that. Don't stop what you're doing. Right. So, um, and the other thing you talked about too, mentors don't always have to be, again, we, we seem to have women supporting women, but your mentors can be male as well. And, Absolutely. and it's more about men advocating for, uh, females to, you know, do all yes. those are the best mentors, male or female, that they're bringing you up as well. Like they're, they're promoting that, um, that, that succession. And it, and it, again, it's not male or female. Sometimes it's just people like being, um, about helping other people to, to get through that process. And, you know, putting somebody else down is not bringing you up. It's just it's putting you down. <laughs> so my very um, first business mentor was a man, Don Gage. And yeah. I was my grave being thankful for what he empowered me to do because he taught me there is no glass ceiling unless you believe there is. Um, and, and that may sound trite when I'm a woman with privilege. Mm-hmm. I'm white, cisgendered, and I grew up in a good, healthy family that allowed me to do things. I had opportunities a lot of people didn't. So it may sound like a really smug remark to say there is no glass ceiling, Mm -hmm. but all of it goes back to mentors, whether they're official mentors or mentors of proximity. Um, There's so many tools. YouTube is a great five-minute university. Go out and find the people that are the better angels in your field of choice um, and tap into the, the wealth of things that are shared there. Harvard Business School. I don't know if people realize this, but they offer a ton of their courses free of charge online. You get a certification and you can be anywhere in the world. There's some phenomenal resources to put us in the path of people that can help us get rid of that, you know, not just the glass ceiling, but barriers that are there. LinkedIn is a tool I would absolutely recommend people lean in on because it puts you in the um, same digital backyard as incredibly, incredibly powerful women in your field and men in your field, mm-hmm. where it's not disrespectful to lean out and ask a question. It's encouraged. A lot of, a lot of us that um, have been around the track a few times would love the opportunity to help, not even necessarily mentor, but just be of use to answering questions to a young woman coming up in our field. Those are moments of servant leadership that a lot of us welcome. And and the, the key is to be able to ask for it. So if you ask somebody, you know, because there there's so many mentors, they want to mentor, like you say, um, but they don't get asked. All you have to do is ask, because the only thing and they're going to say is no, and you're exactly where you were. But if they exactly. say yes, what an amazing experience! So it goes back to believing, absolutely believing that you belong, mm-hmm. that you have the right to be there, and the heck with ageism yeah. that we all have value, as you mentioned you find a lot of the value you get from your students. Um, and I have to admit that reinventing at 58 years old, some of the most powerful lessons I draw on right now are from my daughter and from younger women, because my gosh, the courage, the fearlessness that they have mm-hmm. that I used to have and feel like I've lost. Um, that's you still have it too. You still have it. <laughs> Learning it again. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't even do it after. Uh, so this has been a great conversation. Like I and I, we we touched base after um, an event and knew that I wanted to have you on because um, very wise and and just again your your experiences are absolutely incredible. So I think uh, I think I, you know it was a great choice to have you on here. So I thank you so much for joining us. So thank you um, for getting me the 
chance. I always like to ask your last bits of advice. So if you could tell 19-year-old Sue that one solid piece of advice, what would it be? There are so many. (laughs) A big one is um, be conspicuous. Mm -hmm. You belong. You're not imposing. Um, And also live a great story. Do it on your own terms. You have permission. You're unleashed. Go do it. In the words of Terry Gwilmet, is chase your passion down like it's the last bus of the night. Um, <laughs> and the way to change the narrative, um, the one that says we can't because we're girls, um, is to do it for ourselves. Don't wait for somebody else to give you permission or make it easier or solve the problem. Um, that just denies us our power and gives a pass to life-changing opportunities that are ours to live. Um, that teaching job that I was given at the University of Western Ontario that I should never have had. Uh, it was one of my first opportunities to live into the fullness of that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my students was a tenured professor from another university. And we were in a computer lab one day and he called me over to ask for help. And this is a man who at that point is probably in his late fifties, early sixties. And when I got there, he told me that I had to kneel down um, because a woman was never allowed to stand above a man. What? And I politely told him that in my lab, everyone was equal. And that if he wanted my help, it would not be offered by my kneeling. (laughs) And that took a lot of guts, but it goes back to the fact that you do need to be clear Mm -hmm. about your entitlement. It's a terrible word, but that again, you belong. Uh, And we also, I think, have to resist the urge to lay blame. When we Mm -hmm. hit a wall, Um, we have to refuse to engage in that us versus them mentality that that it just dominates so much of our society, particularly the past six years. Blaming men or the patriarchy or the system doesn't solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Believing you're powerful beyond measure and just that you belong is it's where you start. And you don't need literally or figuratively. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the girl who failed math. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a girl who wasn't allowed to learn computers, but I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. It changed my life and allowing me to do that also um, allowed me to change it for others. So I've spent the last three decades trying to pay that forward. Don Gage invested in me when he decided a scholastic metric meant so, less than the girl standing before him. He showed me there was no glass ceiling, that women belonged everywhere. See, and that's exactly what we need is those that, so there's, there's a, a group I know uh, with Ford Motor Company, they have men as allies and then that oh. supporting women, which is a great, uh, I think that's a great initiative. So anyway, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I always like to finish with just some rapid fire questions, lighthearted, don't think about them, just answer okay. quick and easy, just to, as a way to uh, sign off. So if you're watching a movie, is it in the theater or do you, are you a couch uh, sitting on the oh. couch at home? That's a tough one because I have to tell you, when they installed those leather recliners out at Cineplex, I was all about the theater experience. Me too. And I bring yeah. a blanket with me and everything oh, just to be annoying. I going to say, I worked at the movie theater uh, all through high school and university. So that's kind of my, you know, that's my happy place. Three of my bit, four but I'm kids. like, I wish they had recliners back then. <laughs> Three of my four kids were, um, were in the theater business. One ended up pretty much running it. And I just, there is just something about a vicarious escape in a dark room on a big screen that completely takes you out of yourself. And I love it. And I miss it. And I still haven't gone back to a theater since Uh-oh. the pandemic started. And I can't wait for that. Having said that, I also love the fact that at any time I can pull up Netflix or Prime or mm-hmm. Apple Plus, TV Plus, anything, and just dive into thousands of stories that engage me. I, I, so both, my answer would be both. <laughs> Awesome. So pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Heck yes. It's Canadian, eh? <laughs> so Canadian. Did I just lose your respect? You just, I don't know. I will have to, I should ask that one last because you know. <laughs> I, I blew it. Okay. Edit. <laughs> What's your favorite local restaurant? Actually back up. I also love sardines. That ought to really kill it. <laughs> really? Anchovies and pineapple. This is this is what you have. Well, when I was when I was in high school, I worked for a wonderful Sicilian couple that Mrs. Alabetto taught me that the best food is taking a bunch of fresh sardines and putting them on a bun in the pizza oven, and that was just awesome. So yeah, wow. Okay, sorry. Right. Your next Fair question enough. was <laughs> was your favorite local restaurant? It's now gone. 
this lovely man named Ryan had this beautiful little bohemian bistro down on Chatham Street that disappeared because of the pandemic. What and was it called? Just like walking into Paris. And I don't know if this is a menopause moment or if I can still blame it on chemo. A couple months in the rear view mirror. <laughs> I'm going to think of it the second we're done and shame That's on okay. me. Um, the, oh, pause cafe. Um, just this, this man embodied everything community. He, he just really did. And I have several others, but that one was near and dear to my heart. Cause it was just a small business guy that survived so many more years than he should have in spite of the economy. He just, yes. yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's great. <laughs> and you have good memories. So little uh, techie question, I guess, do you prefer a mouse or a trackpad when you're using your computer? <gasps> Absolutely. A mouse. I am for all the years I've been in technology absolutely hobbled by a trackpad. I cannot make them work for me. The same as using a cell phone and trying to use that swipe. Uh, like mm-hmm. when you can do the, I can't yeah. remember what it's Oh, the, the yes. It On the keyboard. Yeah, I don't, I'm the same. I'm the same. <laughs> uh, so if you're reading a book, is it a digital book, audio book, or an actual hold in your hand? It's almost like a brick and mortar book. I want to call it physical <laughs> Like book. the old block cell the old phone. school, yeah. Yeah. You know, two years ago, I would have said, give me a hard copy book anytime. Just the feel of the pages and mm-hmm. the smell and being able to tuck your dying um, orchid blossoms in between the pages of your favorite book. I mean, there's just <laughs> something very sacred about holding that in your hand. Um, two things changed that answer for me. One was discovering that I had an entire frigging library of thousands of books in my pocket on my Kindle when I was going through treatment or when I was traveling on a train and just being able to pull up my favorite tome and just have it being so light, just having all those novels in one. And now, because I've been losing a lot of my sight, I resisted audiobooks like the blag for so long. I just thought, oh, that just makes me feel so old. But when you're losing your sight and, and not even just when you're losing your sight, but the pleasure of hearing a well-needed, well-narrated story, especially in the voice of the author, mm-hmm. it's just a next level kind of immersive experience. So I have to say at this point, all three, I still love my hard copy books so much. I still love them. Oh, and I, I couldn't part with my Kindle or my I, I, I started with a Kindle, which was nice because when you are traveling, that's the thing because I would be bringing three books half, which I would never read. Um, <laughs> having a Kindle was, it was kind of nice, but uh, audiobooks have become nice because I can listen while I'm walking the dog or I can be listening to a book. And again, it's that take you away while yeah. you're driving in the car, you know, instead of, you know, Absolutely. I love to listen to music. But. I think also just the price point makes it so much more accessible and that's actually dangerous. I could drop entire paychecks on Amazon with Kindle book because a couple of bucks and they're yeah. there. So I'll buy like not one book, but maybe five or six. Sure. <laughs> and then like you never read them maybe you too, but with all good intentions all good intentions <laughs> well Sue I just wanted to thank you uh so much today for uh joining us on the podcast and um it has been a pleasure chatting with you and getting to know you so we hope to see you uh at future endeavors that we offer through and uh thank you for your support of the uh women in STEM and uh as a mentor and a leader and uh, I think it was great to have you on today thank you so much well, Sue, I love our chats and thank you for the way you create so much uplift around so many people, not just through Genesis, but all the different ways that you engage as a servant leader um, and just a community member. You are a treasure and it's been wonderful having the chance to connect with you and get to know you better. So thank, Aww, you. thank you so much, Sue. It must be a Sue thing. There you go. That's what I it think is. so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Have a great day. Thanks everyone for joining. Thank you for tuning in to the St. Clair College Women in STEM Speaker Series podcast, highlighting women trailblazers who have excelled in male-dominated industries and environments. If you're a St. Clair College student who would like more information on the Women in STEM Club, or you're a woman working in STEM or a leader in your field and are interested in being featured on our podcast or acting as a mentor for one of the incredible young women in our STEM Club, you can email us at stem at stclaircollege.ca to sign up. Be sure to connect with us on social media at St. Clair Genesis. For more information on the Genesis Entrepreneurship Center, or for details on our workshops and entrepreneurial resources, you can visit our website at www.stclaircollege.ca slash genesis. 
If you like this episode, please make sure to let us know by leaving a review and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much for joining us and supporting St. Clair College, the Genesis Entrepreneurship Center, and Women in STEM. Until next time.